on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Hal Schurz, and each week we come to you with the information that you will need so that you can advocate for yourself when it comes to healthcare matters. We give you the information that doctors are talking among themselves about in the doctor's lounges all over the country so that you'll be armed to fight for your health care freedom. This show is sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only doctor-led, doctor-run healthcare think tank in the country that's run by actively practicing physicians. And the, phys- the foundation is uh, standing up for the uh, doctor-patient relationship and for healthcare freedom. And we are working hard trying to uh, uh, advocate for our patients and for you, our listeners. So please support the foundation. Go to the website, www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org or www.d4pcfoundation.org and give generously so that we can continue to do our work and bring you shows like the Doctor's Lounge each week, which uh, hopefully uh, helps uh, people uh, learn about the uh, difficult issues in healthcare, which are not easy to navigate. I am fighting a cold today, so please bear with me. I'm going to do the best that I can to uh, get through this show. Um, these uh, winter colds are, are the worst. I can't believe, though, that it is the end of January already. Where is, where is time going? I think a famous philosopher, it might have been Woody Allen or somebody like that, said that life is like a roll of toilet paper. The uh, closer the uh, the the closer to the end that you get, the faster it goes, and I think that that's what's happening with the calendar. It just doesn't seem like it's the end of January already, and it was just the new year, just yesterday. At the uh, bottom of the hour, we are going to be joined by our special guest, who is in Washington D.C. It's uh, Nina Ocherenko, who is the director. Uh, for the Center for Healthcare Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation, a good friend of ours. We've worked with her for a number of years. Nina is in Washington, where they have uh, uh, just opened the schools again today, and she's uh, battling the snow in D.C. with her little one trying to get him to school. So she didn't want to uh, uh, stick us in, and uh, not be able to get on the show at the top of the hour. So we'll tee it up for her when she joins us. There's a lot going on in healthcare, it seems, and uh, and it's under the radar because nobody is talking about anything other than Donald Trump these days. And, uh, and that's really uh, too bad because a lot of bad things can happen when nobody is paying attention. Before I get into some of those things, I'd like to give a huge shout out to a very special friend of ours and uh, one of our guests uh, in December, and that was uh, Meg Edison. If you uh, remember, um, we had Meg on the show, and she was talking about maintenance of certification, something that we talk about quite often on this show. And Meg was uh, our guest, and we talked about some of the things that she was thinking about and going through, and she wasn't sure whether or not she would uh, 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 apply and, and go through the uh, what was necessary to maintain her 
board certification, the American Board of Pediatrics. And uh, in the course of our radio conversation, we said maybe she should uh, uh, write about it and get it out there and let people know what's going on. And she did that. And she wrote an open letter to the American Board of Pediatrics, which went viral. I always, I always uh, um, am jealous about the people who write things that go viral. I don't know what it is that touches a nerve with people and, and uh, makes one of their pieces go, quote, viral. But hers did, and it's gotten, gosh, several hundred thousand Views. It may be in the million. It may be at a million already. But I know that it's gone viral. When I have people who are sending me the link to this from California to Florida to New York to Michigan, people are just saying, "Did you see this?" And somebody at my own hospital, where we're fighting this maintenance of certification battle and trying to get our children's hospital to allow for alternate. Uh, pathways for doctors to maintain their uh, board certification, and we're getting a lot of resistance from the entrenched bureaucracy at our children's hospital, but we're still fighting that fight. But one of the people on our side sent me this link and uh, said, wow, you need to read this. This is just what we're talking about, and it was it's it, it just made me chuckle. And so I, I highly um, recommend people to um, read this open letter to the American Board of Pediatrics. It's on uh, uh, rebelmd.com. And um, it's uh, actually the the site is um, http um, colon double slash rebel.md slash open dash letter dash the dash American dash board dash of dash pediatrics. Um, forward slash and um, it is it is it'll give people an, an idea an understanding about what uh, uh, the the problems that the average doctor is facing when it comes to maintenance of certification <coughs> excuse me I'll be coughing throughout the show um, the the one um, paragraph that I just wanted to highlight in her letter which I think really says it all is when she um, pointed out that if you look at the tax records of the American Board of Pediatrics, which is public information, she says that it's all about the money. It is not about quality. It is not about protecting patients. It's about lining their pockets. She pointed out that the president of the American Board of Pediatrics earned $1.3 million. The average pediatrician earns under $200,000. And she pointed, further pointed out that this pediatrician did not need to take maintenance of certification himself. He was grandfathered in, so he didn't have to do it. She pointed out that it's about first-class airfare for board members and their spouses and the $1.2 million spent on board meetings and conferences. It's about $102 million in total assets in 2013, skyrocketing up from $65 million just four years earlier. It's about an elite group living lavishly while the frontline pediatricians slave away, compelling 
I'm sorry, complying with never-ending hoops and ever-increasing fees. And so, um, this is this is a great uh, a great uh, letter. It, Meg is a patriot. Meg is a a fighter. You can also Google her, Meg Edison, and you probably will be able to uh, uh, pull up this letter. But this will give you an idea of of what this maintenance of certification in fighting in the healthcare community. And I want to point out that there's no issue that unites doctors as much as this issue does. And yet we can't fight this beast. We can't um, beat back this this uh, this animal, this entrenched bureaucracy. But we're trying, and we're trying to chip away at it. And, um, and I think the more that patients understand what is happening and how it's taking away their doctors and diverting their attention from what needs to be um, attention devoted to patients, um, they'll understand why doctors are so angry about this whole issue. Um, the uh, health care issues are not getting very much uh, attention in the presidential races, and uh, and for good reason. It's uh, it's a it's a mess, and nobody knows, you know, what is uh, going on with health care, and and I think that they're so busy trying to beat back Donald Trump that they're not focusing on <clears throat> some key policy issues, one of which is health care. Health care is still out there as a major problem that needs to be addressed. And um, the, uh, the, Dem- the uh, uh, Republican Party has given themselves a collective high five. Because- Why did they do that? Because they passed a-, a bill in both the House and the Senate to repeal Obamacare and send it to the president. Do you remember that the uh, <clears throat> let me just go through a list uh, with you. They, the um, the Republicans said, "Give us the give us the House, and we will we will uh, beat back Obamacare." So they were given the House, and uh, they said, "Well, you know, we only have one of the two chambers in Congress. We really can't do anything because nothing will get through the Senate. Give us the Senate." Well, we gave them the Senate. And then they said, you know, we don't have uh, the presidency. We can't do anything. But they said that if they got the House and the Senate, that they would begin to pass bills that would go to the president's desk and would highlight the differences between what Republicans and Democrats stood for. If they passed bills and sent them to the president and the president vetoed them, then they would be able to show the American public what it would be like if they had a Republican in the White House. Well, uh, Mitch McConnell, the uh, the majority leader in the Senate, um, had finally gotten the the uh, cojones to use the same um, uh, administrative uh, tricks that uh, the uh, the despicable Harry Reid had uh, used to get legislation passed, which was um, reconciliation. And what that do- does, it it prevents the, uh, the minority party from being able to filibuster and keep a bill from being introduced on the floor of the Senate. So that means that despite the fact that you have 
a majority in the Senate, a minority can control the agenda by filibustering. Well, you can get around that process by reconciliation, which was initially intended just for um, financial bills. But Harry Reid brought this up when it came to getting judicial nominees appointed, um, which was not financial, and uh, broke a over 200-year tradition in the Senate by invoking this. Well, Mitch McConnell, the principled Republican that he is, said, no, that's not what Republicans do. But finally, he was convinced by the uh, by his caucus that they needed to do this. So they finally did it to get the uh, Obamacare repeal introduced on the Senate floor and passed with a majority, which is all that they need. The bill passed and it went to the, the president's desk. And two days later, he did what you would expect Obama to do. He vetoed it. Well, this is an example of if a tree falls in the forest, does anybody hear? And they got the, um, the bill passed. They got their point across that they were able to get an unpopular piece of legislation passed in Congress and sent to the president, but nobody in America knows that this happened or that the president vetoed it. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of heavy lifting that needs to be done in health care that these um, presidential candidates are not doing because they are so focused on their gamesmanship and on one-upsmanship and on on um, beating back the the loudest voices on the stage that they can't uh, they can't get out of their own way and really focus on the important issues that uh, we're facing and we're, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the positions of some of the candidates um, when we get back in the next segment in the doctor's lounge. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. You're back in the doctor's lounge, and uh, we're talking about the uh, health care issues and the 2016 presidential election. At the bottom of the hour, we'll be joined by our special guest today, Nina Ocherenko, the uh, director of health care policy for the Heritage Foundation. Um, in uh, at the at the uh, end of the year, um, 
this probably didn't get a lot of attention because it was around the holidays, but I wrote a piece that appeared in Town Hall uh, entitled, Does Donald Trump Really Know Anything About Healthcare? And it's very scary when our Republican nominee is talking about health care for everybody, and uh, that's essentially uh, a single-payer system. And uh, you know, Donald Trump was on record on 2020 talking about what he was going to do uh, when he became president when it came to uh, health care. And it's, it's just, it was just um, mind-boggling how somebody who has relied on the free market his whole life for amassing a fortune is is now lured by the uh, by by the uh, uh, those who are advocating that healthcare is a uh, god given right that the country needs to provide for everybody, and I think that that um, you know the the problem is that uh, I, I wrote in my piece that uh, P J O Rock said that uh, if you think that health care is expensive now, wait till you see what it costs when it's free. And um, and it's it's just, you know, going to go out of control. And uh, that was uh, something that was seen in the state of Vermont when the state of Vermont tried to um, do a, uh, a, a single-payer system for its state residents on a much, much smaller scale. And uh, the senator from the great state of Vermont is um, is uh, out there advocating for more of the same, the same plan that Vermont decided to abandon because they couldn't afford it because it was going to cost way, way too much. It would have raised state income taxes to over 10%. It would have increased sales tax. And uh, it would it would have still been in the red by 2020, and so they said this is just untenable. We can't we can't do it. They abandoned that idea, but yet we have one of the major presidential candidates on the Democratic side advocating for what the state of Vermont could not do on a state basis, and and it's very interesting because we have. Republicans who are saying that we should repeal and replace Obamacare. We also have Bernie Sanders saying we should repeal and replace Obamacare because he believes that it didn't go far enough. And what he wants is a fully run government-run insurance program, much like Medicare. We, Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, is saying that Obamacare is good and that uh, abandoning it is the wrong thing to do. We need to strengthen it and work on what is good and what is working about Obamacare. But it's very interesting that these people have gotten it entirely wrong because nothing is working with Obamacare. And I, I would, um, I'd like to uh, point out that everything that Obamacare promised to do has fallen short. It has not decreased the the insurance premiums for individuals. It's increased them. It has not decreased their health care costs. It's increased them. It has destroyed the insurance market. It has uh, made health care for the young, um, the, the millennials, the invincibles, 
unaffordable. And now, for the first time, they're going to feel it on their tax returns because they're going to have to pay either $695 penalty when they file their 2016 tax return for for twenty for the year 2015, when they file their 2015 tax return on April 15th, either a $695 penalty or 2.5% of their taxable um, gross income. And um, and so the they're expecting the average penalty for those who have failed to get insurance to be about $965. Now, people are crunching the numbers and they're doing the math and they're trying to figure out, okay, is it better for me to take the penalty or to buy the insurance? And buying the insurance... Is, is costly. Even um, with the subsidies, most people are still on the hook for deductibles of up to $6,000. Actually, $6,000 is pretty much average. One of, uh, one of my friends, who is a friend of this show, who has been on several times, physician, he um, always calls me when it comes time to uh, redoing his insurance every year, and that just came up two weeks ago. And he wanted to point out to me that his premiums for he and his family have gone up to $2,500 per month. So that means it's costing him $30,000 a year for his insurance plan, plus there's a $6,000 deductible before his insurance kicks in. So now his insurance has gone up to $36,000 before insurance benefits are paid to, uh, to hear his family for the health care that they're getting. Well, this is what the millennials are doing. They're figuring out, well, they're pretty healthy, and uh, it's going to cost them an arm and a leg to get insurance. They can't afford the insurance that has now... Um, that, that now is, exists in the marketplace because of the destruction to the insurance industry thanks to the Obama overregulation. <clears throat> and so, so uh, they're, they're deciding to uh, sit back and, and uh, take the penalty. And this is, just, this is just unprecedented. It's astounding. And at the same time, this is happening in an environment where the um, – the uh, federal state co-ops um, have failed. Um, Eleven of the twenty-three federal state co-op healthcare insurance cooperatives have um, folded. Every other one, except one, I believe, is in the red, and uh, many of those will probably fold as well. Um, and um, the insurance companies who I have absolutely no sympathy for and don't misunderstand where this is going. <coughs> but the insurance companies, every single one of the insurance companies who have uh, who are participating in Obamacare are losing hundreds of millions of dollars on their Obamacare um, uh, products. So an insurance company has multiple products. Like if you take a... Uh, a company like United Healthcare. United Healthcare has an HMO product, a PPO product, a point of service product. 
They participate in in a Medicare product. Well, they also participate in the Obamacare exchange product. That segment of their business, they're projecting um, this year, has lost um, $425 million, and they project that next year they'll lose $500 million on that product. Well, they've more than made up for that on all of their other products because of their ability to limit the panels of doctors that they are that are providing care for the patients who are subscribers so they're they're re- reducing the outflow of services they've made that up by charging um, 40% higher premiums than they were charging before Obamacare went into into effect so they're making record profits. Don't don't even think for a second that they're not, and and you should feel sorry for these insurance companies. But but they're a business, and if you've got a business and you've and you have six or seven business lines, and all of them are profitable except for one that just keeps losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Just just I mean, be realistic. That's not going to be a business line that they're going to continue to to uh, engage in. And that's why they've threatened to drop out of the Obamacare exchanges. And, uh, and the other um, companies that participate in uh, the insurance health, the Obamacare health insurance exchanges will likely follow suit. They'll do the same thing. And um, the... Uh, the payments that were supposed to be made to these insurance companies for their shortfalls, if they participate in Obamacare, are rightfully being held up in Congress. So that's the one thing that they are doing right, and uh, and not and not allowing to go through. But this is the, the this this is the mess that that is happening at the insurance level, and um, it's interesting now that. Andy Slavitt, the uh, the acting director of uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is being called on the carpet by the Senate. He's got to explain why the uh, the healthcare exchanges or why the um, the co-ops have failed and what why um, uh, the the they the um, Congress was told that 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 you know this was going to be the way that they were going to be able to uh, uh, provide care for for the the tens of millions of people they said who were uninsured and and who couldn't get health care through through private insurance and these these co-ops would be able to do it better well they can't do it better we know that this is a very complicated issue and uh, and so I circle back to the collective high five that the Republicans are giving themselves over the passage of the Obamacare repeal, and the rhetoric that's coming out of Washington is just really amusing. It's it, it's not really funny, but it's just so so typical. And their answer <clears throat> for Obamacare now that they have gotten their first shot across the bow for repeal <clears throat> is to provide a an alternative a better plan for for uh, America um, when it comes to health care the Republican plan for health care 
um, uh, the regulations that need to be put into place so that we can see better alternatives, better choices to Obamacare. And they completely miss the boat. They just don't get it. Their answer to this whole mess is more regulation. It's getting rid of the bad regulation that the Democrats um, were responsible for and replacing it with their good regulation when the answer is so simple and right in front of our noses, which is for them to get rid of most of the regulation, just get out of the way and let creative entrepreneurs who know how to do health care, who know how to deliver quality at a lower price, allow them to do it without stomping on them and keeping them from being able to do this. And that's pretty much what we're going to talk about um, in the next uh, two segments when we're joined by our guest, Nina Osharenko. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Michael Connolly inviting you to listen each Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern to my show, Our Constitution, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And you're back in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. And as promised, we are joined by our special guest, uh, Nina Ocherenko, the uh, director for the Center for Health Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. She has uh, been in this uh, uh, position since 2010, and she is the Preston A. Wells Jr. Fellow in Healthcare Policy. Um, welcome to the Doctor's Lounge, Nina. Thank you so much for having me today, Nina. You um, wrote a uh, a piece that uh, appeared in the Hill um, last week on um, what's next for Obamacare. Why don't you uh, share with our audience uh, some of the highlights of what you wrote and and what the heritage position is on health care for 2016? Sure. Well, you know, believe it or not, 2016 has started off great um, on the health care front, at least those who have concerns about um, the Affordable Care Act and the future of Obamacare. Um, The Congress at the end of the year did pass um, a piece of legislation that really did gut core 
provisions of the Affordable Care Act. And for the first time, even though many on the left want to say that House and Senate have passed millions of repeal bills, this was the first bill that actually got to the president's desk. Now, yes, President Obama did veto it, but it was an important marker to showcase, and I think and most importantly to the American people, that repeal is possible. And perhaps with the new administration, that opportunity is, is ahead of us. So I think that's a very important marker that was that took place of um, getting a real repeal bill that repeals g- big portions of the Affordable Care Act to a president's desk. Um, <clears throat> and so now starts the effort for, I think, 2016 of a real back-to-basics, understanding the root causes of why our health care system is the way it is today and what real reform needs to look like that puts it in a more patient-centered and market-based system moving ahead. So- and in my piece... I've really kind of broken it down into four main categories, and it's kind of uh, looking at two pieces. One is kind of the demand side for health care. How do we finance health care? How do people buy their health care? And looking at how do we reform the way we pay for health care today, and that looks at three major areas. One, the tax treatment of health insurance. The vast majority of people today get their health care through the place of work, um, but that is a very outdated model. As we know, people are more mobile in their jobs today, and every time they change their job, that means they have to change their health insurance. So we need to really look at reforming how we compensate people for buying health insurance and make sure that it's direct to the individual rather than through third-party payers. And then the same is true on government programs that run for the vast majority um, of seniors and even the low income through the Medicaid program and looking at transforming how those government programs are financed and not financing, you know, the bureaucracies, but really trying to use the financing to get directly to the people themselves and allow the consumer then to participate in the marketplace and make the choices that they want to make. And then finally is kind of the supply side of health care, and that looks at really the marketplace. Um, we've learned a lot from the Affordable Care Act that the more that government regulates health care, the slower innovation is, the harder it is for um, the marketplace to really work. And what we end up with is kind of a race to the bottom because no one really wants to stick their head out. Let's do the minimum just to make sure we meet regulatory standards. We really need to free the marketplace, free innovators, free entrepreneurs, and allow the marketplace to adapt to what the consumers are going to demand. And I think that's really the fourth piece of the of the um, stool for a replace that might come through um, another Congress. So, so Nina, um, are you a little um, dismayed at the lack of attention that health care has been given in this presidential campaign? Yes. I mean, I think it's bubbling to the top now, and I think what has been most I think uh, uh, concerning is the past eight years and the past eight years I think this administration made a strategic decision that they were not going to touch any of the problems within the Affordable Care Act and if they did have to reopen the law it would be only for a minor change here and there their biggest concern has been over the past eight years was knowing that if the debate over health care came back to the forefront that reopening the health care law was going to create turmoil in their plans. But even those on the right and the left have agreed, I think we can see that from this um, presidential cycle, is that this health care law will be reopened and readdressed in 2017. Now the question just becomes which direction is it going to go? But I do think that um, 
I think that there is more hope than there is pessimism um, that 2017, regardless of who is in the administration, this health care law will be reopened. Um, and that's why this is the year, really, to kind of get everyone grounded um, and focused on what are the fundamentals of getting a real patient-centered free market health care system ready to go. Um, and so people aren't scrambling at the last minute to figure out um, the direction that we should be moving. So when I look at this presidential um, uh, cycle, and I think that this is, you know, every every presidential cycle is the most important presidential election of of our of our lives. But I really think that this one um, truly um, lives up to that billing. And when it comes to health care, there are pretty much four different um, directions that this can go in with four different candidates. And that would be if Bernie Sanders was the president, if Hillary Clinton was the president, if Donald Trump was the president, or if some other Republican was the president. Because I think most of the other Republicans are are pretty um, uniform in their approach, although there, there are nuanced differences. But but um, but Trump stands out as the uh, as the um, as the odd man out, so to speak, on the Republican side when it comes to health care policy. Well, it's, like you said, it's always really hard to tell until, um, you know, people get in office and things actually start getting done. And I think that um, the way the Affordable Care Act, if you look at the facts on the ground of how this thing has run, <clears throat> it is a clear, it is a lessons learned for um, why a single payer, why government top-down um, regulations and bureaucracies are not going to lead to the best health care in this country. And so I think that the lesson, the facts on the ground, I, my hope is, dictate the direction that, that the health care um, reform alternative takes place because <clears throat> doubling down on a on a um on a single payer system as some have suggested i think already has even exposed within the democratic party the problems that that faces which is what is the level of taxation that would be needed to even get something like that up and running we know in vermont they attempted it in the last governor um, and they had to abandon the efforts. They just couldn't figure out how to make it work. The concern, I think, in the middle <clears throat> is that building on the Affordable Care Act, to me, implies that what it's really going to mean is we're just going to double down. We're going to allow the private sector to to survive, but it will be through government dictate, and it will be a, run like a public utility. And therefore, you have the facade of having a private market, um, but underneath, it really is a government-controlled system, just with different levers that it uses. And I think <clears throat> the alternative to that obviously needs to be rolling all that back. Let's test out what a real market might look like. And I think that one of the lessons learned on the right has been that um, that policies need to be put in place. I think, you know, many things need to be revisited. And that's why the proposals that, that we've articulated at Heritage and I've articulated really get us back to that, that it's not about going back to the status quo that we had before the Affordable Care Act. That itself created lots of problems to the health care system, which I think unfortunately led us to testing out this um, solution on the left. Really, we need to go back and say, let's take it in a different direction, and let's start getting at modernizing the healthcare system in a way that is adaptable to a 
robust, innovative um, culture that we have in the United States and allow us to have innovations in the marketplace and allow flexibility and allow um, new ideas to come that are not driven by what the government regulates or what the government tells insurers they need to do or providers what they need to do or hospitals how they need to practice care, how many readmissions they should have, et cetera, et cetera, but really re- refocusing the, the energy back on the consumer so that consumers can start demanding what they think is high-quality health care at a lower price. So what are, what, what are some of the, um, uh, the goals and the projects for Heritage vis-a-vis health care in 2016? Sure. Well, <clears throat> I think we do have a lot of work to do on kind of educating this new generation of healthcare reform. And um, I always tell a story that we were doing a briefing in the Capitol with about 75 Hill staff soon after the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And one of the panelists asked a basic question, how many of you in this audience were here during debate over the Affordable Care Act? And less than 12 people raised their hands. So I think it was a wake-up moment for me in particular to say, we have a whole generation of new members, new staff on the Hill, and even the American people who are really now focused and engaged in what this health care law has done, that really only know health care reform through the lens of Obamacare. And we need to change that, um, change that thinking and say, you know, there are some fundamental flaws from the health care system whether it's the tax treatment and an outdated employer-based model that, don't, that doesn't give people the flexibility to own their own health insurance, or whether it's seniors, you know, that in a health care system today, a very outdated Medicare system that even those on the left say we need to modernize. Well, let's modernize by giving seniors choice, which is what they're now accustomed to when they're in Medicare. Let's just make that apply to everything in Medicare, not just for the prescription drug side or those who choose a Medicare Advantage side. And on, on, on the Medicaid side, really looking at educating people about what it is, what is the Medicaid program. You know, too often people say in Washington, well, that's a state issue. And in the states, they say, wait a minute, no, it's the federal government who sets all the standards that we have to run these programs by. Really, even there, we can start talking about what would be the best way of helping those low-income people who might need additional assistance. Very similar to the movement we see um, in the education field, where people talk about school choice, and that means, you know, you can go to a parochial school, you could go to a private school, you could go to a charter school, uh, a magnet school. All sorts of innovations are happening in the school choice area. And I think we can learn a lot of lessons in that field in trying to help people understand what health care reform means for us um, on the conservative side as well. So we'll be spending a lot of time this year getting back to the foundations of what are the fundamental pieces to health care reform moving forward, really educating members of Congress and the staff and um, the American people on this, and then really kind of showcasing, I think, in the media that those on the right actually share far more in common with their proposals than they have um, in opposition to one another. I think often those on the left try to show big gaps between all these different plans that are out there on the right because no one has one big plan. 
Well, I don't think that's the way the legislative process should work. We shouldn't have Congress, one person in Congress, hand out a bill that's 300 pages and say, here's the solution. It should work through the normal legislative process where people can amend. And I think that's the way you get to perfecting legislation. And hopefully that's what this year will be, which is really getting people to start talking and and discussing um, various proposals and various ways and approaches to getting to health care reform so that we're really at a place where you have um, a perfected product coming in 2017. Okay. Well, we're at a hard break right now, Nina, so we'll take a breath right there and take a break and finish this conversation when we get back into the doctor's lounge. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George. Join me on Wednesday mornings from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock when we talk about more than medicine. It's now about staying healthy, but it's about the strategy to do so. Join me on Medicine on Call. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. We're back in the doctor's lounge with my special guest, Nina Ocherenko from the Heritage Foundation. We're talking about, uh, not surprisingly, uh, healthcare and uh, the Heritage Foundation's um, uh, plans for, for, uh, Getting the message out in 2016 about uh, change and uh, and alternatives, and uh, we were talking about the um, the government um, regulations and uh, the ability to uh, uh, educate the public and and uh, and and uh, legislators of uh, alternatives that that they should be considering, and and one of the things that that uh, concerns me, Nina, is that uh, the people who are in Washington are, are um, so insulated, they're, they're in, living in their bubble, that they, that they think that the answers to the problems of, of the uh, health care system, the bad regulations, is, is um, replacing those regulations with other regulations, other laws, which are just as bad and, and and I'm referring specifically to this doc fix law that um, that uh, was passed before the end of the year, and um, that was intended to get rid of some of the some of the administrative issues that uh, faced Congress every year in trying to pay for Medicare. 
but what they did in in replacing that with with the alternative which was the macro law it was putting more regulations on on the physician community in an attempt to um, regulate them further and reduce uh, the the payment to doctors do you care to comment on that Sure, I think you hit the nail on the head that, you know, this is one of the problems we have in Washington, as well as, I think, in the state legislatures, sometimes um, in the states as well, which is they see a problem, and they finally are convinced that something needs to be done, but rather than getting at the core of it, which is to remove these obstacles that these that the government regulations have put in place, you're absolutely right. They just kind of do a modified version of something else. But now, you know, five years later or three years later or whatever, we'll be facing the same problems yet again because the regulations cannot keep up with innovation. And so really, at the core, legislate, policymakers should be careful that what they're doing legislatively is removing policies that are creating obstacles to this innovation rather than, as you said so perfectly, replacing them with things that just will strangle the um, the medical profession even more. And I think even at the state level, we know that we have policies. I, it'll be very interesting with a repeal legislation um, coming to fruition if we get to it at 2017, you know, the regulation of health insurance will then be restored to the states. But what are those states going to do? Are the states going to reenact all the insurance mandates that they had put on the books prior to the Affordable Care Act? Or will they learn a lesson to say, you know what, maybe we should take our foot off the gas a little. Let's let the marketplace um, fall into place on its own. We don't need to micromanage everything in the health care system. What's your prediction? So I, I am, I'm concerned with you as well. So, so do you have a prediction? Do you think do you think that the legislators will have learned? I I hope so. I I hope that they have learned the lesson. I think having the Affordable Care Act on such a massive scale has really proven these small um, experiments wrong. So we did have a lot of states that just kept plodding along, like, well, we'll adjust this. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll tone down this regulation. Maybe we'll add a, an alternative or an exception. That's another thing. Let's do more exceptions. Exceptions should be, maybe this means that the regulation itself is not doing its job, so let's get rid of the regulation. Right. I, I hope so. I think that it has been a wake-up call in Washington. I think it's been a wake-up call at the state level, and I think it's been most important, a wake-up call to the American people. And I think that they have woken up and realize that when people say they're going to have all these great promises of what their campaign slogans are, etc., when push comes to shove, the question is, is it going to add more government or less government? And so we really need to follow through. It's not just about what people say, it's how they implement what they're going to say that's most critical. And I do think the American people have recognized that putting more power in the hands of Washington is certainly taking us in the wrong direction, especially in health care, and that we really need to get back, not just to restoring power at the state level, but going further and restoring freedom to the American people, what, you know, as patients and as well as um, in, in providing care through the medical profession. Well, which is why it's really important, and although this election is not a one-election, a one-issue um, uh, election, and certainly health care isn't the most important issue, 
it's important, but it's not the most important. People need to um, really uh, understand what their candidate is uh, saying and uh, understands about health care, because if they are saying the wrong thing or they don't understand it, then they are unlikely going to be able to um, uh, be in a position to do what is necessary or do the right thing when it comes to fixing this problem. And I, and I think, too, like I said, maybe I'm being an optimist, but as someone who has sat for eight years frustrated by no attention, I mean, there's been a lot of attention to health care, but actually no policy progress. And so maybe I'm being optimistic, but regardless of who's elected, I think the one thing we can be prepared for is that the law will be reopened, and that is an important opportunity um, for those of us who want to restore freedom to make sure that every bite at the apple, we are turning this ship around. And now, you know, depending on who's elected, that ship might have to move slower than others, but I think it's important that we keep our eye on the ball, that... We have to remember we have been in a horrible standstill for the past eight years, and that's not the way legislation operates. You have law after law that changes law because we have to adapt to the circumstances. This health care law is barely standing up on its own, and so I think by reopening it, we have an opportunity to really push forward the ideas that the American people want to see, which is restoring greater control in their hands, not in the hands of government bureaucrats. We're not going to have a lot of time in this segment, but um, I, and I, this is a, probably a, a, a topic that's way, way uh, deeper than what we have time for, but what do you think at the state level the most important um, uh, policy change um, might be that that would uh, move us in the right direction. I think the states need to start looking at what regulations they have on the boards that are anti-competitive, that are restricting people's access to the care that they want, and that are slowing innovation. Whether it's looking at you know having physician-owned hospitals, prohibitions on those, whether it's um, limitations on allowing consumers to have a direct primary care doctor that isn't part of an insurance plan, whether it's looking at um, telemedicine, all these things, the innovations, I, I describe the health care law, I mean the health care as really what we have is a, if we want a free market, if you really believe in a free market, it's like a river. And the Affordable Care Act was like a boulder that fell in the middle of that river. It slowed the innovation. But eventually, ideas and entrepreneurs continue to to flood the marketplace, and they find a way around. But what we need to do is remove the biggest barriers that that are keeping these things from really flowing um, freely through the health care system. And so I think states need to really go back, and we've recommended this in other papers, Go back and think about if you get control over your health care system again, what would you do different? It's not going back to the status quo. It's rethinking your insurance regulations, your mandates, um, what you allow people to purchase, how you allow them to um, set up a marketplace in the state. And I think that's really critical. It's not just about going back to the status quo. It's about learning from the lessons we've had and put us on a better path moving forward. And I've written about this, and I, when I've had a chance to talk to those in state government, I've uh, pointed out that the better they are able to do this at the state level, 
the more the state will thrive. And you look at states that have successfully done what you've said. State the the, the number one example that comes to mind is Texas, where they have no certificate of need laws, which we've talked about uh, a lot on this show. They've got they've um, they have uh, um, legislated. Um, malpractice reform as a constitutional amendment. Um, they have no taxes, no state taxes in the state. It's an environment that um, that encourages people, I- industry, to move to Texas because they know that they can get quality health care for their employees at an affordable price. Well, that's certainly, when you look at what we need, the states, like I said, take your, they need to think about taking their hands off because what we realize is that the government cannot keep up with innovation. So they might write a regulation that they think is helping some, you know, small segment or a special interest here and there. But within, a, within six months, that regulation is likely going to be out of date. And that innovation and um, people being able to adapt according to the needs and the demands of the consumer is so important. And I just have not seen an example where the government can keep up with the pace right. of it. Well, we are at the end of our time, and, and we could have certainly gone another couple of segments with you, Nina. And um, we uh, here at the Doctors' Lounge really appreciate the work that the Heritage Foundation is doing and the work specifically that Nina Ocherenko and her team in uh, healthcare policy studies is doing at the Heritage Foundation. So thank you for what you do, and thank you for joining us today in the Doctors' Lounge. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for being a great voice for the doctors out there who believe in freedom. Well, thank you very much, and hope to have you back on our show at some point in the future. Great. Thanks, Nina. And thank you for being in the Doctors' Lounge. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. Thanks, and see you next time. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.